Learn Persian with Chayan Conversation, Raising Nimrunis, a conversation with Adib Khoram. Welcome to this Raising Nimrunis version of Learn Persian with Chai and Conversation. I'm your host, Leila Shams, and today's interview is with Adi Khoram, the award-winning author of Darius the Great is Not Okay, the story of a half-Iranian, half-American teenage boy, his experiences, and his first visit to Iran. So in addition to writing about the experiences of a Nimruni boy, Adib is a Nimruni himself, so he had a lot of perspective to share about growing up with an Iranian father and an American mother. So with that, let's get on to the interview. I'm talking here with Adib Khorra on this Raising Nimruni's edition of Learn Persian with Chai Conversation. Adib, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and congratulations on your book, Darius the Great is Not Okay. And I just finished reading it this week, and I really loved it. And I'm sure you get this a lot, but I wish that this book had been around when I was growing up. There was just so much relatable content in there. I think I would have really enjoyed reading it as a teenager, not just an Iranian teenager, but in general. So thank you for writing this book. Uh, thank you for saying that. I kind of very selfishly did write it for kind of the the teenage Adib that was still inside and also wished that I could have read a book like that instead of like Rime of the Ancient Mariner. And um, this is actually my first interview with an actual Nimruni, which is what I'm calling half Iranians. But I see that in your book, you call yourself a fractional Persian. I haven't heard that before. Is that a common term or is it something that you came up with? As far as I know, I came up with it as Darius's own way of kind of neurotically grappling with his heritage. I myself usually just say either half Iranian or just say Iranian because in America and particularly growing up post 9-11, that was all that really mattered. Right. <laughs> well, can you tell me about your background then? I guess from your name, obviously, your father is Iranian, right? Yes. Uh, he and his whole family grew up in Yazd and at various times, most of them left Iran and moved to North America. My dad moved actually before the revolution and came to the States to study. And then when the revolution happened, he just didn't go back. And post-revolution, most of the rest of his family left and settled in Vancouver, British Columbia. But he settled in Missouri and met my mom, who is white, and got married and had kids. Do you have brothers and sisters or is it just you? I have one older sister. And so what was your experience growing up being half Iranian? Did you learn to speak Persian or? We did not learn to speak Farsi. Uh, I think part of that is, I don't know, a lot of kind of my aunts and uncles have kind of made offhanded remarks that it's a mom's job to teach the kids language, ah. which I think is a very patriarchal way of looking at it. But also from like a more practical level, when me and my sister were very little, there weren't a whole lot of other Iranian families in Kansas City. And so he just didn't know who we would speak it with. And as we got older, more Iranians started settling in and around the Kansas City area. And we started seeing them. But like as a kid, I was just like, oh, we have to go hang out with the Iranians. And as an adult, I now realize that like, I'm not sure my dad really liked some of them either. I think it was more of like just searching for any sort of community. and. As time passed, he found the ones that he had actual like affinity and friendship with and the others we like stopped seeing. That's my assessment, though. Like if dad, if you're listening, I'm sorry if I've thrown you under the bus. <laughs> 
And your sibling can't speak. Did you say a brother or a sister? Uh, sister, Afsane. Oh, Afsane. Okay. Does she speak? Because in your book, that's a big point of contention between Darius and Lale is that she can speak Persian and he can't. Is that something from your own upbringing? That is not. She also cannot speak Farsi. But in the book, I decided to have Lale be able to speak it because I felt like First, I should preface this by saying that as I was writing, I had a very sobering moment when I was like doing a little mental math and realized I was closer in age to Darius's parents than I was to Darius himself. <laughs> and so I got to thinking a lot about like what would happen if I had kids. Mm-hmm. And in particular, the way that I think kind of my experience of being a child of an immigrant has been and seeing kind of other people who are immigrants is the tension between assimilation and retaining your culture. Mm-hmm. And so in the book, Darius's mom tried to assimilate, but I think she came to realize that maybe that was the wrong way. And so she tried to course correct with Darius's little sister and like, you know, tried to kind of make up for lost time. Right. Well, what's been your relationship with both Farsi growing up? Like right now, can you speak it or have you had an interest to go back? I have done like learn Farsi on tape type things and uh, never got very far because all of them were speaking like very formal Tehrani dialect and my family does not sound like that at all. Right. And so like when I would try to practice with my dad, he's like, well, we don't really say that. Right. (laughs) Uh, Well, we don't say it that way. And I was like, oh my God. So I keep hoping Duolingo will do something like in Farsi. But for the most part, I like if I spend enough time visiting my family, I start to absorb it a little bit and can kind of halfway tell what's going on. And then once I'm like back home and not speaking it with anyone, I forget everything. Right. (laughs) Do you feel like it is important? I'd love to get your perspective on this. I think it's absolutely crucial. I think it's a first of all, it's a beautiful language. But two, I think if we, you know, picture the cultural iceberg, language is one of the few things that is above the waterline. And for for kids of immigrants, connecting them with their language is a very strong way of connecting them with their heritage. And it's a way to understand kind of the deeper parts of their culture. I don't resent my dad at all for like not teaching us because he was like doing the best he could. And certainly most of my life, like it's not exactly been a great time to be Iranian in America, mm-hmm. but I definitely miss having that cultural touch point. Okay. Because this is the question that we're asking in this podcast a lot. And I'll tell you, like, everybody who I've interviewed, basically everyone is, you know, Iranian in in the U.S. or or grown up not in Iran, and they've married non-Iranians. And this is the big question that they have. And everyone is (laughs) struggling with trying to keep up the language when their kids really don't want to learn, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, do you have any sort of insight into how to how to approach that with kids that aren't interested at all or I think what I've observed and I so I have 13 first cousins wow okay and most of them have kids now of varying ages and what I've seen almost across the board is all of them talked in Farsi to their babies I've been watching a lot of Schitt's Creek lately by the way which is why I say (laughs) bebe that way so the the pattern seemed to repeat with just about every kid in that parents would speak in Farsi to the kid, grandparents would speak in Farsi to the kid, and the kid would respond in Farsi up until public school started. Yes. And immediately the switch to English happened. But what was great is having that foundation, they would still like understand Farsi even if they were answering in English, like mm-hmm. even as some of them are teenagers now and they can still understand pretty much everything that's being said to them. They just don't r- respond in Farsi. And to me, that's 
like while it's sad, it's also great that they have the foundation so that as they get older and no longer have peer pressure to conform, they'll have the skill set to be able to speak Farsi when they want it. Okay, so you don't believe in like doing some sort of really forceful approach of just speak Farsi with me and and that's that's the only way it's going to be. My feeling is that young people have so many pressures on them from school, from society, from the world that my generation and the generations before us have created that's kind of crappy that I for me I think the most important thing to do is to, you know, be able like provide choice for our young people. And I say this, you know, having no kids of my own, but like with my cousins, I always try to give them as much autonomy as I can Mm -hmm. and just kind of treat them as tiny adults uh, in some way and let them make their own choices and uh, let them know that that kind of that well of language is available to them. And like all the research I've read says that like, you know, like up to age five is when you are like, if you're exposed to a language when you're very young, you're going to retain an ear for it in a way that will make it easier to pick up later in life if you choose to. Uh, Whereas if it's unfamiliar and you're kind of trying to learn it as an adult, it's much, much harder. Right, right. And so my hope is that, you know, that research is borne out. And having had that early exposure, uh, even if they choose to not speak it, they will kind of keep that in the back of their mind for when they need it. But from your book, it seems like, I'm I'm guessing a lot of things in Darius (laughs) are similar to your upbringing. He's very familiar with with a lot of cultural aspects of of Iran like he's very into the food he knows all about taruf and about a lot of the cultural aspects so how did your father pass that on to you obviously it was you know it was a part of your upbringing it sounds like interestingly I don't remember being uh, completely aware of it until I was a little bit older kind of middle school aged I think when I was younger I just kind of absorbed things from all around me and there weren't a whole lot of Iranians around Every summer we would go and visit our family up in Vancouver. And that was like being thrown into the deep end of Iranian culture. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of weird because I would like absorb some things, but not really understand them. And a lot of my, my understanding and my ability to put words to Iranian culture comes from being an adult and like doing research on Iran, but also going away to college and no longer having like any other Iranians around. And then trying to explain my culture to other people. Where did you go to college? Oh, I went to college outside of St. Louis uh, at a, a university called Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Okay, and no Iranians there? N- none that I knew. Uh, I was in the theater program and there were no other Iranians <laughs> in the theater program. I'm sure there were other Iranians at the school, but I don't think I knew any. But yeah, but like being on my own gave me space to kind of come at the culture on my own terms. And I think that helped me... Uh, A, understand it better, uh, but B, cherish it more. I found myself listening to Iranian music like when I never used to. I mean, I've always loved Iranian food, but I worked really hard to find an Iranian food or Iranian restaurant in St. Louis that me and my friends could go to. Uh-huh. But I had, I don't know, I found a much deeper appreciation for it uh, once I could kind of come at it on my own terms instead of having it prescribed to me by others. And what about your experience? I mean... Our podcast is called Chai and Conversation, so obviously we have a big affinity for Chai. Um, it's a big part of the culture. Is that something that you grew up with? Uh, it is. I... And Darius, I will mention Darius, is very into all sorts of different Chai and not just the very particular Chai that Iranians have. Yes. Growing up, yeah, I certainly remember 
the kettle was always on at my aunt's house. And I would put way too much sugar in it as a child. And as I got older and my palate developed, I was able to take it straight. I loved his reaction to his grandfather telling him how to just basically brew tea. (laughs) And he was very gracious about it. He just said, um. (laughs) That was really nice. I think we have those moments sometimes where someone tries to mansplain to us. Even if we ourselves are also a man. just, just sometimes you just got to go along with it. <laughs> and speaking of men, um, I like how you show this relationship or this difference that kind of Iranian boys express their masculinity and the way they relate with other boys. What was your experience of that growing up? How, how did you come across that? Because that seems like a very astute observation. I remember like my cousins were always just like a lot more physical um, like they would roughhouse more than I remember boys roughhousing, but they would also like hug it out with each other, just like, you know, rest their hands across each other's shoulders, lean a head on another's shoulder. Um, and it was like very different from the way like all the white people I saw back home where everything was like, you know, the huge no homo bubble around them. And so I knew that for like, for someone coming from the United States and then going to Iran, it was going to be jarring. But I knew that Darius would have at least a little bit of, you know, a little bit of basis for that. But I also knew fairly early on uh, in like the writing process that Darius was probably queer. Mm -hmm. And that just kind of added another layer to like what's going on. And so I, I think it really fascinated me to explore kind of the different ways that boys can be friends and express affection to each other. And especially as that intersects with kind of the American version of masculinity. Right. Well, I'm excited to see. I know you're writing a sequel right now. It's actually all done and it comes out August 25th. Congratulations. Cool. And I'm excited to see where that goes there. And also, I'll say my aunt is a psychologist and she's she's always been very open about talking about depression. She she grew up with depression and she's been very open about it. and, And that's a big part of the book as well. And I know in Iranian culture, that's, you know, mental illness in general and and the way that Iranians talk about depression is not always very understanding or kind. So I really appreciated that that was in the book as well. And I think, you know, bringing that into this this space is a really important thing to do. So is that something that in your family, was that something that you guys talked about openly or was it more swept under the rug? Is it kind of in Iranian culture? So because my mom was white, like growing up, we were a lot more open about uh, mental health stuff, especially since her side of the family had a long history of it, like several generations going back of, uh, unfortunately, like relatives who have died by suicide, you know, relatives that were diagnosed and took medication and managed it just fine. And so she was very open and talking about it with me and was very ready when I was showing signs of depression to get me treatment. And I don't know that like the running side of my family was ever like, super, super critical of it. You know, people would kind of say offhanded things sometimes of like, what are you depressed about or whatever? But for the most part, they just were like, eh. And I think part of that is because I was a like living in America separate from all of them and B, I was only half Iranian. They were just like, (laughs) whatever. But I think in particular, writing about it, one, uh, when I first started writing back in 2015, there were a whole lot of uh, YA novels uh, about mental illness, but they pretty much all had someone dying by suicide in them. And I wanted to push back about push back against that. But two, I also think that while it's important to me to kind of reflect the world, 
for young readers, it's also important to kind of show what the world could be. And so I wanted to write about Darius being supported in his his mental health journey, because that's what every young person deserves. Right. Well, I think that's a nice thing to intersect with this idea of being Iranian, because I think that it will raise awareness in, for those teens that are growing up in a immigrant household that doesn't talk openly about that. I think it'll be nice for them to read this and have someone to relate to about that. I certainly hope so. I guess moving forward, what's your relationship now with the Iranian diaspora? Do you have Iranian friends? And what's your now that you've written this book, do you have a lot of contact with the Iranian community? Um, I'm still a little bit separate just because I don't have a whole lot of Iranian friends here in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Um, my Iranian friends are a little more widely flung. And so I talk with them on Twitter or Instagram or email. Mm-hmm. Working on this book has introduced me to a lot of new Iranian friends, especially there's a lot of like Iranian and Iranian American scholars studying the diaspora. And it's been really cool to kind of connect with them. One of them, uh, Amy Malik, is a professor uh, at the College of Charleston when I met her. And I think she's at Princeton now, a professor of global studies. And um, Nida Marboule, who wrote The Limits of Whiteness. There's like a whole bunch of us. And uh, it's really cool to see the scholarship that's emerging around our, our diaspora and then be able to connect it to to fiction and the arts. So that's been really cool. There's also like a bunch of other Iranians, Iranian-American authors now. There's Sarah Farazan and Arvind Amadi and Abdi Nazimian and uh, Alexander Monir, Tahare Mafi. I feel like I'm probably still forgetting someone. <laughs> Daniel Nairi. Wow. There's like a bunch of us now, and it's really exciting. And this is just in like the children's publishing space. Wow. Huh. Um, just knowing how many like Iranian American kids are going to grow up with books that reflect them. Yeah. In ways that like we didn't get to. It's really, really exciting. Sounds like we can have a fun book festival with all you guys. All right. We so a few of us have already like made a plan. We're gonna we're gonna form a band called the Gugush Dolls. <laughs> Okay. And go and do do go and do book festivals that are just like a panel of all Iranian authors. It'll be great. Once we're allowed to get out of the house again, I'm sure I I'm know. sure we'll start having festivals. <laughs> I know. So I'm sure I'll be back through, and hopefully, lots of the other Iranian authors will come through as well. We're slowly but surely taking over. Well, cool. Well, speaking of the future, I guess um, my last question is just: What's your hope for this Iranian diaspora moving forward? What do you hope that the future will bring for everyone? Oh, that's a big, big question. Uh, I definitely hope the orange one will go away, mm-hmm. and uh, and we can try to move the relationship between the United States and Iran towards a more amicable one. I think, as far as Iranians living here, I hope we continue telling our stories and making our art, and showing and reminding people of our humanity in a way that the news media so frequently forgets. And I hope that it is better for our kids than it was for us. Mm-hmm. I love that. And um, in the show notes for this episode, we've included a link to the Penguin Random House website, which has links to buy your books, which right now you have Darius the Great is Not Okay, which is the one that I finished this week. And then you said in August, you have Darius the Great Deserves Better coming out. Well, I also read you have a book called Seven Special Somethings and Noru's Story. What is that? Uh, that is a picture book. So it's for small children and it comes out in spring of 2021. And it's about a little boy named Keon who accidentally destroys the family half scene and has to build a new one with whatever he can find around the house. Oh, nice. <laughs> okay. I'm really, really proud of it. It's I've seen like some of the draft illustrations and it's absolutely adorable. And I'm really excited 
to be able to share it with people pretty soon. Great. And people can find you right now on, and I actually found you on Instagram at uh, Adib Khurram, which we'll put in the show notes, but it's A-D-I-B-K-H-O-R-R-A-M. Um, and on Twitter as well. So all places that people can find you, see what you're up to, and get more information about your books. So thank you so much for talking with us. I, I think we got a lot of good insights from someone who's actually grown up half Iranian. Well, thank you. I I really enjoyed doing this. Yeah, and also, not to plug my own podcast, but I will send you a link. We started this podcast for exactly what you're talking about, to teach people to speak conversational Persian. And so we have, you know, over 70 lessons now and the only thing that we teach is how people talk. Uh, we don't teach bookish Persian. And I think we're the only ones that do, that focus exclusively on that. So That's excellent. I can't wait to listen. Yeah. So I'll send you info for that so that hopefully you can get some use out of that as well. I definitely will. <laughs> okay. So thank you so much again. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the interview with Adi Khoram. For more interviews, check out the culture section of our blog at chaiandconversation.com with chai spelled C-H-A-I. And like I told Adib in the interview, if you want purely conversational Persian lessons, that's what we specialize in. Check out our website to find out more. Again, that's chaiandconversation.com with chai spelled C-H-A-I. Thank you so much for listening and until next time. Thank you.